Gary DePaul with Unlabeled Leadership. Welcome to episode 38, Ajay Pankagar Persuades Professionals to Give Up Control. Here's a shout out to listeners in India, particularly from Gujarat, Uttar Pradesh, Madhya Pradesh, and Uttarakhand. With that, let's get started. In episode three, Ajay talked about how mentorship is bi-directional and how we may not be aware of the effects of our acts of leadership. And he also challenged us to rethink our conversations. In this episode, Ajay is going to talk about a principle called giving up control. And he's going to talk about specifically three beliefs that are derived from that. Because of his expertise in business, accounting, and talent development, and his experience being in management, Ajay has an appreciation for the principle giving up control. Part 1. Control Erodes Relationships In some ways, it's harder to lead and more challenging to lead when you're in a position of authority than if you were an individual contributor. That's so tempting to use your authority to get people to act in the way that you want them to act. Ajay does a better job explaining this than me. Here's Ajay. People in positions of authority tend to, I would say, overmanage and possibly even overlead. There's a lot of accountability on a leader to obtain results. And sometimes novice leaders will because they're feeling the pressure of leading and motivating and achieving those results, they feel they need to take control uh, and ownership fully. Along with that comes accountability to make sure things happen. Now, conversely, on the other side, what happens is that the employee now who's being led and is overmanaged or overled is feeling the pressure that they're not being listened to or engaged in the activity. And that causes an issue because what happens here is, in my opinion, two words are being undermined. One is trust, and the other one is confidence. And when you overlead or you fully control and take that authoritarian kind of position, it undermines the trust those employees have in you. Because what they're looking at, it's almost like a, uh, it's that circle, that infinity circle where they're not trusting you, but that causes you not to trust them. And eventually what happens, that relationship starts to crumble. And eventually confidence overall tends to crumble because employees don't feel you trust them enough to be able to run with that task. And I've seen this happen on on various occasions. So I think leaders really need to think about not to overlead and to build a sense of trust and delegate that authority and allow the people to engage in that activity. I think, I believe that's where the true leadership builds trust and confidence over time. You mentioned novice. And I think that is so true is that when you're new to management, you're new to taking on a role where you have say at six or seven direct reports for the first time, there is a, like you said, a pressure to control. I haven't thought about this before. You don't understand the dynamics of what your role is in management compared to what they're to do. And, and I like how you say you overlead, you tend to overmanage, over control what's going on because you don't know, you don't know what you don't know. Absolutely, Gary. So it's like, I don't know if you've ever baked. Um, and I don't necessarily bake on a regular basis, by the way, for your audience. I know this for a fact that, you know, when I do bake with, you know, or my wife bakes and, and we're making dough, 
the chefs or the people at the extra cell, you don't overwork the dough, right? Because what happens? The dough becomes tough and it becomes brittle and it doesn't, you know, rise up to the occasion when it's in the oven. Well, you can use that analogy with people as, you know, as a new manager uh, with a significant amount of responsibility on your shoulders, and you've not been in this position before, you may over, you know, over need, you know, when I say need the need of the dough, mm-hmm. sort of over need the people itself. And then you're making them, you know, brittle and crumble. When it comes time that you expect them to rise to the occasion, just like the bread in the oven, they won't because for a couple of reasons, one, you know, they're not sure if you want them to. And number two, they don't feel the trust or they don't have the skill set. You haven't shared that with them to be able to let them shine and show off their work that you need them to show. That's very important. But there's also another element, Gary. It's not just a novice. And that's probably the more common one, the novice one. But I've seen also on the other, other end of the spectrum are egos that come into play that love to have control. And it really is about the ego play here. Somebody in a position that now is, you know, it could be a veteran, somebody who's been in management for a significant amount of years at a very high level, and they've fallen in love with their own ego. That causes a control issue because everybody's looking to them for that leadership capacity. Because they've had possibly a lot of success in the past, they're just now feeding that that monster, right? And that sense of control then also continues to undermine that delegation and that empowerment of, of people within the organization. And so there's a two, those are the two areas I believe that really, you know, undermine the relationships with employees. And it really comes down to, you know, undermining trust and confidence in people. And that's a terrible place to be if you're a leader. There's an ego threat that can happen. And part of that is how you, if you're supposed to be managing a team, how you're supposed to present yourself to them, so to speak. And there's some insecurity about what happens if other people take charge. And that's a sense of self. It comes down to the point where you really need to appreciate who you are. You need to know who you are. Admittedly, right up front, I have insecurities, and we all do. We're human beings, and you know we all face you know what's been called in recent uh, years uh, imposter syndrome. And I understand that if you've gotten to a position, you need to park a couple of things. You need to park the imposter syndrome, and I know I have difficulty doing that myself. But you need to park the imposter syndrome because if you got there, you've been rewarded on merit. So embrace that. Somebody knows what you're doing; otherwise, they would not have put you there in the first place. Number two, you are now responsible for a bunch of people under you that are looking to you for guidance and sage advice and counsel. You're not the person to actually do the work. You're actually there to, to really stoke that fire to make people move. And when I say move, not in the literal sense, but you know that figurative sense to get people up and going and actually engaged. Those things are really important as, as, a new, as any type of leader. That sense of self is really important because in my recent role, I was, a, I, was a, I think I mentioned to you, Gary, I was a, 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 a senior director at, in government here in the government of Canada, uh, one of the departments, and I was leading a team of 35 employees. And I was new. I was from the outside. I was only there for a specific mandate, but they put me in this position. And now I had a couple of choices. I come in there as a command and control leader and say, hey, this is the way I, you take it my way to highway. And that could have worked, but it probably would have been a short-term gain. I decided to go in there, of course, with my personality to say, I want to meet with all of you. I want to hear what's going on. I want you to share with me the successes, but especially the pain. That kind of conversation and engagement built trust with them over time. And what it did is because it it secured my sense of self that people knew that, that I would let them go to do what they need to do. Right? They're smart people. You know, we hire smart people. If they're smart people, let them do smart things. 
get out of their way. That's really what I tell them. But it's that, that first step is your sense of self. You got to get out of your own way. And that's really important as far as alleviating the control and that leadership side of things. Part two, leading well is about empowering others. Empowering others makes them more capable. And empowerment can be in the form of knowledge, resources, authority. For example, empowerment could be showing someone a faster way to use an application. A supervisor could authorize the team to make certain decisions when working with customers so that they won't have to find the supervisor for approval. Empowerment also is a way of decreasing dependencies. Ajay expands on this perspective, on this particular belief that is. Here's Ajay now. What you want to do when you're leading others within an organization, you know, I mentioned earlier that you, you hire smart people and we do, you know, let's face it, we live in what we call a knowledge and information age. We're no more in the early 1900s or late 1800s where we're in an industrial age where all we had to make sure is that people showed up to an assembly line and, and build their widgets. We are really in a higher level thinking age of our society. And the people coming into our environments are highly you know, skilled and educated individuals. So we need to really leverage that. If you've hired somebody with a set of skills that hopefully exceed your own. I mean, I've always said, I like to be the dumbest person in the room with the smartest people. Yeah. Because that's my opportunity to learn as much as I can. I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. That's ego. I want to be the dumbest person in the room because I will just be a sponge. And if that's the case, I'm going to put a team together that has skill set that's way past you know my ability because they're going to make me look good if I can just harness that. It's really about allowing them to leverage the skills and feel like they want to be there because at the end of the day, and I believe it's Dan Pink, if anybody knows the author Dan Pink says, and this study has been going on for years past Dan Pink, but he's actually put in a book pretty well said that money is never the motivator. It's not the carrot. It only takes you so far. And actually the Federal Reserve did a study on that um, in the U.S. to say that, you know, financial gains and bonuses only take people so far. Even at times it's a demotivator. Then what is the motivator? Well, the motivator for these people is their skill set. Get them engaged. If they're showing up for work, they're there because they want to leverage that skill that they fell in love with. You know, that's the empowerment part. There is a chief HR officer of a hospital system who is very conscious about hiring PhDs and he collects them, so to speak. <laughs> it's, it's true. And insists that on their badges, they put PhD. Oh my goodness. If they don't have that on their badge, then he'll make them get a new badge. He'll get them all in the room and say, look at, look, we have a bunch of PhDs. We're smart. We're sharp. Now as the chief HR officer, I'm going to tell every one of them what to do and how to do it. It's like, there's this inability to empowering others and leveraging their capabilities, which is just what you're talking about. If you, if you don't leverage their intelligence and their capabilities, then you're going to end up with, like you were saying with Daniel Pink, short-term gains with, yeah. instead of it being money, it, it's control. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that example up because to me, two things come to mind. One is it seems like a theme of ego is coming back here. This is the ego of that HR director that likes to, you know, show off their prowess in hiring PhDs. Well, sorry to be a little slang here, but dude, that's not a skill. No. You know, I mean, seriously, you know, I'll open up a bunch, I'll put an ad out saying I want a bunch of PhDs and I'll get them in a minute. So that's one. So great. You hired a great, a lot of very intelligent people that got PhDs. 
And not to, you know, denigrate the PhD um, education level. I think, you know, aspiring to that is really admirable. But I've been in, the, in rooms, my father was a, a significant PhD, and I, talk, I call him a snob to his face because for some reason, and maybe that's changed in recent years, but I don't know, I've, I've only met, I think you're one of the few, Gary, you know, <laughs> that I've met is just down to earth and um, just genuine about themselves. But I've met a bunch of PhDs, you and I probably have both met a bunch of PhDs that think highly of themselves. And I'm being polite here. Oh, yeah. And they don't get any work done. It's like it's like that, you know, that proverbial, you know, high school success story that you got A's in every class and, and while they're in high school, and then they get out and fail in the world. They're still living in a past environment. And they're not the most successful because it's the one who got the C's and the B's probably that worked harder because they felt they had to work harder and became the bigger successes. We see this all the time in entrepreneurship. The ones who got the C's and B's are the ones who are the leading industry today. And the A's you know, are very few and far between are, are not those successes. But it goes back to that. So there's the two things here. One is that HR director's ego. And when it comes to collecting PhDs, that person, of course, is not empowering those PhDs to do what they need to do. And the PhDs in my gather, he's just collecting them. He or she's collecting them. They're not really there for anything else but to show off their PhD. They're proud to do that. And they're not being empowered. We don't have the right people. We don't have the right mix of people. And that's, again, a bad leadership. So empowerment in that organization, I don't know, maybe you can tell me I'm wrong here. That organization, I'm assuming, is really out the window. It definitely is. You know, there, there's another point that you're saying that if you're going to empower others, you don't just try to empower people with the experience and with the credentials. You empower everyone because some of the people that you have on your team may have high school educations, but they can have brilliant ideas just as well as someone with a PhD. You know, my grandfather was a baker and he, you know, he was from a small town in Northeastern Quebec, French Canadian family. Seven kids, you know, working class in a very, you know, town of 4,000 people. And he was a baker and everybody, he didn't have much of a high school education. He was one of 13 kids himself. He put a bakery together and he had a staff. Everybody in the town knew him and respected him. You know, he didn't have to have a paper in a wall to prove that he knew what he was doing, right? And he was able not only to lead his staff, but he was also able to lead, he was leading a leader in this in community because he embraced the community. He empowered the community. So you talk about that leadership skill transferring into work into the community. And then, of course, he sold that. And then he uh, went into real estate. And even then, because he built up that trust within the community, everybody came to him to sell their houses. You didn't have to be the smartest person in the room. Smart is, is smart is smart. I mean, anybody can be smart. Let's be honest. If you put your nose into a topic that you really enjoy, you will learn everything you want to know about it. And it will make you exceptionally smart and intelligent that doesn't transfer into actually being engaged and empowered. I think people need to separate that to it. If you're a leader, I think you need to stop looking at resumes and the pedigrees and start talking to the people. Because when you're hiring people, you're looking for the intrinsic skill, that quality that you can't get from a book or can't get from education. It's that intrinsic quality that you will not see on the paper. Get rid of your algorithms and your HR systems about sifting through who you should be looking at because they have, you know, this kind of GPA or this kind of degree and start bringing people that you feel that can do something, you know, network. And, and that's where you're going to get a degree of empowerment. And I'm sure you, you've seen it, Gary, you've seen people with, you know, lesser education, let's say, uh, and that we tend to look our nose down onto. But man, can they probably do circles around some of us. Part three. By making yourself dispensable, you make yourself indispensable. Traditional leaders fear that 
giving away power would make them weaker or uh, dispensable. Their thinking is that if those whom they give power to become more successful, then others may perceive them as being dispensable, while the opposite is true. The more you help others improve and excel, the more that they, especially the ones whom you empower, perceive you to be indispensable. I asked Ajay about the idea of being dispensable to become indispensable. Here's Ajay talking about this. I love this topic because this is counterintuitive from what we're told. Making yourself dispensable means that they don't need you. What you're really doing is leaving everything on the table and saying, here, I'm sharing, I'm, as my old bosses say, you know, you're opening your robe. You're showing them everything and giving them everything and, and run with it. At the end of the day, it just shows your leadership capacity to be able to be that person that's willing to do things and show that value for the organization. Now that you're showing everything and that you're able to engage that way, they will want to keep you. In essence, they have all the information they need from you, or they all, all those ideas. But at the end of the day, they're going to want to keep you because they want more of that. And so essentially what you're doing is that because you're exposing yourself and keeping everything on the table as a leader, you are now making yourself indispensable. I do this with staff. I do it myself personally. I, I lead by example. I don't, what I say here is not stuff that Gary wants to hear. It's stuff that I actually take into action. And when I have staff around me, just like that last example recently I shared with you at the government, I sat there and said, look, I don't know everything. I know what I know, and I need you to make it work. And I need to let you shine. I didn't say those words, but I sort of conveyed that message. Because of that, they shined. I wasn't the most valuable person there. It was the staff that really made the work shine. But my boss came to me and says, you know, Ajay, wow, you really sort of were able to harness people that we thought couldn't be harnessed. Like there was one person that my boss written off. He said, I don't know how to work with that person. You're going to have a challenge with that person. I never found it having a challenge with that person. That person was one of my best motivators and my, and my best uh, engagers, I should say. And that person shined. My boss came to me and goes, how'd you do that? I said, I don't know. They just had a set of skills that I needed and I just leveraged it. There's no rocket science here. I didn't have a magic wand to say, make this person a different person. It was just something that happened. There's a myth conception that to make yourself indispensable within an organization, you have to hoard knowledge and not share it, not allow others. Protectionism is out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that is so wrong that if you do the opposite, if you have all this knowledge, you're going to be indispensable because people are going to keep going back to you and back to you and wanting to learn more. Or if they're stuck, they'll go to you. And sharing what you know and enabling others to accomplish what they need to get accomplished is so much more indispensable than someone who hoards knowledge and people have to rely on them, whether they like it or not. Listen, I just made one short sentence here. Protectionism in any form is not a strategy for success. It might work in the short term, but in the long term, it doesn't matter if you're a person or a country, protectionism does not work. It's isolated. It's closed-mindedness. It is something that's going to get you fired. And then it's not going to make you shine as a leader because your employees are going to look at you and say, they're not sharing. What value is that person bringing to the table? So stop doing that. Because granted, you are not shining as a leader. That's that's 100% sure. You know, it's not going to work. <laughs> so yeah. Sharing your friends. So. Protectionism is not a strategy for success. No. 
right on mark with what it means to making yourself indispensable by not falling into protectivism. And I really never understood that. Like I really I never understood why people would want to hoard knowledge or hoard that skill set or, or be so closed off that they don't want to share with somebody. Like what is so secret in your secret sauce that you don't want to share it? Why wouldn't you want to share it? Like seriously, yeah. I, I don't I don't really get that mindset. And it's very foreign to me because I, I, I'm not protectionist myself. I mean, there are occasions that I, you know, I'm scared to share something because I'm not sure about it. That's different. But being protectionist because I know something so strong and I don't want to share it because somebody may copy me or, or this or that. At the end of the day, you know, recognition is recognition. If you don't get it, you know, I know it's disappointing, but big whoop. Let's let's move on. You will get it somewhere else. And if you're not getting the recognition you deserve where you are at because of that leadership and that sharing, then you're probably working for the wrong organization and culture in, in the first place. So find a place that will embrace you. Part four, step aside and provide a safety net. The principle, giving up control, should guide us in how we lead, but it might not be so easy to do. I've asked Ajay to give us some advice on how we can begin to internalize this principle of giving up control. Here's Ajay. When you are giving up control, Number one, as I said this before, you need to be comfortable with yourself. You need to be secure with yourself. You need to understand yourself. It's a scary thing to have because allowing people to shine and stepping aside makes you feel like you're not of value. But just doing that one skill delivers a message of value. That's what leadership is about. People have to remember the other point of advice related to that is that leadership is not about doing the work. It's about empowering the work. And empowering work means empowering people, engaging them course adapting to their needs and being that person that is their safety net not the person in front you don't want to put the safety net on top of them you want to put the safety net under them let them run let them make mistakes let them fail but be there to catch them and say it's all right i got this you tried let's work it out together so it's that comfort with yourself that the comfort with empowerment that comfort with stepping aside and actually let people do what they need to do because they're very smart people just get out of your own way and get out of their way. And I think that's probably the point of advice I would want to talk about removing that sense of control. At the end of the day, Gary, let me just say, just doing that shows that you are in control because you're watching all the parts moving and you know you know what's going on. You know, it's almost like a paradox when you say that at the end of the day, it's, it's showing that you have control in a sense by giving up control and mm-hmm. you're, you're doing your job. I like the safety net. Someone who is mature in management as an executive, a director, whatever, they know that what their role and responsibilities are, are different from doing the, the people doing the work. Yeah. And I think it was Steve Jobs that said, you know, and we, we talked, this about, talked about this before, Gary, that it doesn't make sense to hire smart people and tell them what to do. You know, we hire smart people so they can tell us what to do. But I think the intent is just that. Not control is about letting them do what they do, getting out of their way. So yeah, it is, you know, inherently it's a disconnect for most people and what we learn in school. My thanks to Ajay Pankagar. If you'd like to learn more about Ajay, go to the show notes. You'll find some links, including one to his biography. If you have a question or a comment, go to unlabelleadership.com, click the message icon, and leave a voicemail up to one minute long. Maybe I'll play it on the air. Thanks to those who have contributed to the show, both and as a guest, 
but also those who have given a financial contribution. It helps pay for some of the production. More importantly, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for just doing that, listening. Until next time, lead on. <laughs>